Hi, everybody, and welcome to another exciting edition of Words, Images, and Worlds. I'm so glad on this episode to be talking with author Nora Shalloway Carpenter. Nora, thank you for jumping in and talking with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jason. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know you've already had a busy parenting morning, so I appreciate the time, uh, and I appreciate your work. I'll mention a couple of titles at the uh, top of the episode, and then we can talk about anything else that you'd like. So um, Edge of Anything being one of those set in North Carolina, very near, literally very near and dear to my heart. Uh, rural, rural, I struggle with that word a little bit, but rural voices, uh, absolutely normal. Both of those being wonderful uh, collections of works. Uh, you've done some work in picture books as well, which I appreciate. And I'm currently reading the galley copy of Fault Lines, which is set in another place that I love because I'm originally from there, and that's West Virginia. So did I miss any titles that you want to make sure to mention before we talk a little bit? I think that's all the titles that are publicly known right now. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Which which suggests that at the end of the episode, you can say there's more to come but I exactly. can't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Sounds great. Sounds great. Um, so curious about what has led you to the world of authoring. Mm -hmm. And if you want to talk about the Appalachian connection as part of that, that would also be more than welcome. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I grew up in very rural uh, West Virginia, Marshall County, since you're from West Virginia and mm -hmm. uh, know the geography. Um, and I always thought that, I mean, I always loved reading. I always loved stories. Um, but I got to a point where I think society, it was, it was kind of like, oh, I need, I'm going to go to college and I need to be able to make a living. And, um, I just had it in my head that I couldn't do that as, as a creator, as an artist, as a writer. Okay. And so, um, I was like, well, that's fine. I'm going to, become a professor and I can t teach, you know, I can talk about books um, with my students and then I'll write in my free time. This was like, you know, before you actually know what do you think you're gonna have all this free time as mm -hmm, an adult. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. um, and so I, I did, I was an English lit major in college at Marshall University and, and also I doubled in classics as well. Um, I went on and started a master's program in English literature and I was a teaching assistant um in DC and I loved teaching I really did but I quickly quickly found out that being a professor there's teaching's only like a third of the job and then there's yes. all this other stuff right and then mm -hmm, I was mm -hmm. like oh I don't think this is what I want to do you know yeah yeah um and just like a lot of the political stuff of academia was just really not for me and what really sealed it for me was that I kind of found myself longing for to be creative again. I had been very academic writing these academic papers. Um, and, but I was friends with a lot of the MFA students. So the master of fine art students who were the creative writing students. And I was noticing that I was very jealous of everything they were doing. And so mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I think I need to like take a step back, figure out, you know, and I had this little like quarter life crisis of, um, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And basically I stepped back. I was like, this is, I know that I don't want to be a professor anymore. Okay. That's step mm -hmm. one. And that was really hard for me because I, I was very perfectionist at that point. So I consider myself a, con a um, 
recovering perfectionist, still working on it all the time. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. um, and I got into education. I worked in early childhood development for a number of years, which really like brought my creativity back. It was really, that was really, really cool. I feel like it was foundational to me getting back to like creating and, um, and I wrote a novel during that time. I wrote a, a middle grade fantasy novel because that was when, that was like in the time when you know like Harry Potter was exploding and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, I love this. And um, and so I was like, wow, I can do it. I I wrote a whole book, and then I I I decided, you know, if I want to get serious about this, then I'm gonna like if I actually want to do it, I'm gonna do it. And so. Mm-hmm. I started going to conferences. I started um, doing the actual work of of trying to become a published author. And so that involved going back to grad school. I got my MFA, my master's of fine arts in writing um, from Vermont College of Fine Arts. And that pretty much launched it from then on. I was like, okay, like very much in this world and committed to it. And um, and yeah, and so here I am today. <laughs> love it, love it. I, I love that story of sort of finding where you want to be and what you want to craft and uh, sort of finding that path and and recognizing at times that, hey, this this thing that I thought was for me was not necessarily for me. I can relate to that in a lot of ways. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. it was a really hard lesson for me to learn. Like looking back on my young self, I just want to be like, obviously, like, why don't you just leave, Nora? Like get out of that situation that you're miserable in, you know? Mm-hmm. But in that moment, I mean, it was it was horrible for me. Like I wrote this letter to my parents. I thought they were going to be like, just really crushed and so disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, it, it was, it was a whole thing. And so it's just another reminder too, that things look so different compared, like depending on what life phase you're in. Right. And how mm-hmm. much life experience you have behind you. So. Yeah. Yeah. But I also want to ask about what draws you to write about Appalachian rural spaces because uh, the subtitle of your rural voices is uh, challenging assumptions, which I love. I think there are a lot of assumptions about the region. And then the the other thing that you do in your work is you normalize mental health and processing and emotional processes. So uh, anything that you'd like to share about what inspires you to to write about either or both of those topics? Oh, absolutely. They're both very near and dear to my heart. So I spent a good bit of my teenage years and young adulthood um, kind of rejecting, not really rejecting my rural identity, but hiding it um, because it was very clear, especially in academia, especially in places, you know, when I moved to D.C., um, it was just very clear that people thought a certain way and put immediate Mm -hmm you know, um, assumptions on you if they found out that I was from West Virginia mm-hmm. and, and which shocked people by the way, because I, I don't, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I probably know what kind of picture they were imagining, but they, you know, it was always some kind of like, what you're from West Virginia. You can't be from West Virginia. Like you don't uh... even talk, like, you know, like they had all these ideas and, um, and they were, and you hear that enough growing up. And I mean, <laughs> you get enough of these digs and, you learn to hide that, right? To repress Mm -hmm. that or to think that, I mean, I really did start internalizing shame. Like, oh, I, you know, being from a rural place is like, is really bad. It's embarrassing. I need to like rise above that, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and as I got older, um, 
and I just started figuring out that that was a bunch of BS, right? Or BS. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. were, um, had, you know, that I'd basically been like fooled by other people's perceptions of me. And so, and then it really came to a head in the 2016 election um, when all of a sudden there was this explosion of non-rural people writing all these articles and going on TV and like explaining rural America to the masses. Right. And they had no idea what they were talking about, you know, like just, and, and it got to a point where I, I was, I remember sitting with, um, I was in a, a cafe with a couple of my grad school classmates and I was like, you know, someone needs to do a rural anthology, like an anthology of rural stories that that, they can like, and, and I mean, Hillbilly Elegy had come out and everyone Mm -hmm. was like, oh, now we understand. And it was Uh like, I mean, like, he's not even rural. Like what? Like he went to the summer and anyway, whatever, you know, that's his story, his one story. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of a sudden that was like considered, oh, this is what rural America is. And no, and so my friends were like, well, why don't you do it? You know, and this was before my first book, The Edge of Anything had even published. It was under contract, but it hadn't come out yet. And so I was like, well, I'm not, I'm nobody. Like who, who's going to do an anthology with me, you know? <laughs> and they were like, well, you know, just try, just talk to your agent. And I was like, okay. So I just like emailed my agent, the idea. And she emailed me back in like 30 minutes. And she was like, oh my gosh, I really love this. I think we could do it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I just started connecting with the people I knew personally, writers who I knew were rural, who also felt the same way. And that's how I got like the first contributors and got enough people to put together a proposal. Um, and then, you know, it sold with Candlewick and the acquiring editor, Kaylin Adair, she's, she grew up rural too. And so it like really, so it's about finding those, you know, there are enough people, which just goes to show you uh-huh, <laughs> in, uh-huh. in, you know, in, in these spaces and these creative spaces, like there's a lot of people that don't fall in. There's like society thinks of like the Beverly Hillbillies basically right, right. what rural America is. And I mean, that's just nonsense. And I honestly was so fascinated with some of the stories I received for um, rural voices because, you know, rural Alaska, I've never been there. You know, uh-huh, that's uh-huh. Very, rural Alaska is super different from rural West Virginia. And, sure, um, yeah. and so it was really, really cool. And I also wanted to make sure that we had all different identities represented. And I mean, you know, there's 15 stories in there. You're, you're, you're not, you're just like barely scratching the surface of, Mm -hmm. but it was basically just to be like, look, here's just a small sampling of people who are completely different, who break this idea of a rural monolith. And it's enough is enough. We have got to stop Mm -hmm. thinking of rural people as this one thing. And and I, I talk a little bit about it in the intro to Rural Voices, but, you know, with the election and stuff, certainly, <laughs> you know, we all saw the maps, we all saw the electoral maps and mm-hmm. how voting happened and stuff. But there's a deeper story there, right? Like there are messages that are fed to people mm-hmm. and the people that are feeding those messages are usually not rural. So it's it's that whole idea of where ideas come from and who is who's um stoking the fear in others right you yeah. know like it's yeah. such a bigger story than what people 
want to believe because it's easy to find a scapegoat to just be like, ah, because of these people, you know, this is why Mm -hmm. we're in this mess. And so what I, what I really hope with Rural Voices is that it gives a space for kids or teen readers to see themselves, right. To have a mirror, Mm -hmm. to see some people that reflect their experiences, both good and bad. Like I, I definitely was not, this is not like, a utopian book, <laughs> you know, it's not mm-hmm. to present like this ideal rural society because that's not true. Like just, just like in rural America has lots of problems, just like any other place. Um, And so these, these protagonists are grappling with issues. Some of them hate where they're from. Some of them love where they're from, but mm-hmm. it's just to show. And that's the whole point. The whole point is to show that there's not just one narrative. Um, And so that's, and then I just, I don't know. I I was shocked with how much recognition that book got just because um, we did send it. I mean, it sold fairly quickly, but some people that we sent it to, you know, we literally got the feedback of, oh, I really, really like this, but no one's going to care. Like no one will buy this book, you know? And I was so offended by that. I mean, I know they were trying to just be like, that's what they really believed in the market. Um, But that's kind of the whole problem, you know, Mm -hmm. the whole point Mm -hmm. is that no one cares enough to read about this. Um, But, oh, the other thing I wanted to circle back to was that book, Rural Voices, is really as much for people who are not rural as it is for rural people. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, even from the very, I remember getting a special email from the copy editor who was like, you know what? I, I'm not rural and I can't believe after reading this, she's like, I had no idea. I had these implicit biases that I Mm -hmm. I didn't even know I had. And that was so amazing to hear because I was like, okay, one person we've, we've already reached one person, you know, Mm -hmm. so so that's good. And I got a lot of feedback from that. And it's the same with, um, absolutely normal, um, which I can kind of transition into, Mm -hmm. which is, um, so absolutely normal short stories that smash mental health stereotypes, which was actually put together like right before the pandemic. <laughs> it ended up being timely. Like super timely. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, but my exploration into mental health really uh started with my first uh novel, with my debut novel, The Edge of Anything. And that book um arose because I mean a lot of writers are like that right like they they write the book you write the book you wish you'd had as a as a young person Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so um it was shortly after I guess like I had my quarter life crisis um I started suffering um from severe OCD I mean I didn't know that's what it was and it kind of I I experienced this trauma which kind of I later found out like it unlocked some of that stuff, which now looking back, I totally see all the signs from when I was, you know, like, especially if you're a perfectionist person, you know, you can kind of see the signs that are leading you closer and closer to the edge of, of OCD. But um, mm-hmm. and what I knew about OCD did not match what I was experiencing in my body. So I, I would not have been like, oh, I think I have OCD, you know, like I just didn't put those pieces together. Um, I just knew that I was spiraling really badly um, and into a place where I felt like I was losing my mind, literally. And and for someone who relies a lot on their mind, I mean, I think that scares anyone, but I, mm-hmm. you know, I've always been like more cerebral and academic. And so 
I was starting not to be able to trust myself. Like I couldn't remember if I had done things, you know, just like all, all of these things. It was terrifying. It was really scary. Mm-hmm. And I was a young adult, um, not a teenager, but you know, I'd already graduated college. I had a support system and I lived in a major metropolis in DC and somehow I couldn't get any support. Like even with my husband, you know, clearly something's wrong. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I'm talking to my doctor being like, I think something, something's not right. You know, like I'm not feeling like normal self. And I just, I remember they, um, emailed me this list of like 300 providers, like, Oh, well maybe you can look at one of the, like talk to one of these people. And it was like, it was like everything from counselors to psychiatrists. And, and like, I'm just supposed to randomly pick, you know, it was like such a mess. And, um, so finally, thankfully, um, and I pulled away from my friends because, uh, with any kind of like mental health disorder, um, there's a lot of shame wrapped up, right. You don't Mm -hmm. want like the people close to you to think. And I did try to reach out to some family, some, um, people that I thought would understand. And the reaction I got was very, was not great. And so that just made me even more closed off. Right. And so finally, one of my really good friends was just like, I know something's going on, something's wrong. And I, you know, like, I'm here for you. Please tell me what's going on. And finally I was able to talk to her and it was such a pivotal moment because she just stayed with me in that you know and i just i was crying and she was crying and she was hugging me but she wasn't running from the ugly you know like she could yeah. hold it with me which was so much like i think a lot of people that suffer from any um from grief from depression from anything that is um it feels too hard to handle and that people don't know how to respond to a lot. We're not as a society really taught how to respond to people in crisis that way. Mm -hmm. Um, That can be really hard to open up to someone. And so when she reacted the way she did, that was kind of the first step where I realized, oh my gosh, like actually talking about it makes it a little bit easier to bear. Right. And so, so once I, so then I started my journey of, of, um, you know, therapy and medicine and finding, and that takes a while. It takes a while to find the right combination. Um, and, and then got healthy and also, so then I couldn't, I was embarrassed about that. I didn't want to talk about that for a long time. And then, um, and then as I started, I did, I guess, just like growing up a little bit and like sharing with people, you know, feeling like this is part of my story. Like this, it's okay. It's, this is not something that like, I need to be ashamed of, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you know, people that have heart problems get heart medicine. So why should I ta- not take medicine for my brain? That's not making enough serotonin, you know, like, and, yeah. um, and the more I started sharing my story, especially with women, um, the more people started like being like, oh my gosh, like I also have that happened to me, you know, or that happened to my brother or like, it's like, I, I started to see, oh my gosh, there's all these people and everyone's afraid to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And how is anything going to change if it doesn't talk, if we don't talk about it? And so I always knew from, um, from day one, even as I was going through it. And I mean, there were definitely days where I was like, I, I don't know how I'm going to make it to the next day, but I always wanted to, I always wanted to. And so as I started to get better, I was like, someday I'll write about this, but I have no idea how I'll do that. And it took 
years to be able to do that. It took a good six years until I was able to be emotionally distant enough to consider writing a character that had undiagnosed severe OCD, which um, there's a character like that in uh, The Edge of Anything. Mm -hmm. And but it became really important to me because if I had seen that in a book, I mean, I would have felt so much less alone. I I, I just, it just would have meant the world to me. And so yeah. um, I also had been wanting to write a book about a volleyball star because I, you know, volleyball was a super big part of my identity um, as a teen and young adult. And there you know, there were no books about volleyball players, like very few female athletes in general, but specifically about volleyball. Um, and so then I kind of figured out at some point I had these two stories in my brain. And at some point I figured out that, oh my gosh, like the volleyball star and the girl who's suffering from OCD, like they live in the same world. They mm -hmm. actually know each other. Mm -hmm. And then the edge of anything came together. And um, it definitely was a, it was a very cathartic process for me. Like I remember sitting um, in a cafe writing some of Len's scenes and just having like tears come down my cheeks because I really did put myself back in that position. I mean, Len's story is not my story. It's fiction, but I was able to use a lot of like my emotional experiences from mm -hmm. suffering with severe OCD to put into her character. But I also was, it was like a very proud moment too, because I was doing it and I was okay, which just showed like how much better I was, like how healthy I was, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that was really, that was really empowering to me. Um, it was definitely very, that book, when you put so much of like a personal experience or so much of yourself, I mean, it happens with any book, but I think too, especially with your debut, you know, I put a lot of myself in that book and um, was pretty vulnerable and so I definitely reached a point where I was like, who is even going to care about these two girls, you know, these two girls in Asheville, North Carolina, <laughs> mm -hmm. and they're, you know, they're different crises that they're having. Um, but then when the book came out and the book came out two days after the world shut down during the pandemic, pandemic, so that was like, that was, all my events got canceled. That was, that mm -hmm. was, a mm -hmm. um, but somehow people still found it. And I, I still get letters sometimes from readers, like emails um, about that book and about like, oh my gosh, like Len is just like me. Or, you know, mm -hmm. I see so much of my, and, 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 and any of those, it's just like, okay, like, that's why I did that. That's why I went through that. That's like, I remember telling my husband, if I can just help one person with this book, you know, yeah. right? one person feel less alone, then it'll be worth it. And so it just kind of continued with the anthology. I mean, as we, um, Rocky Callen, who's the co-editor with me, we became very close um, because we debuted at the same time. And her book also, in the way that my book has OCD in it, her book has um, suicidal ideation, her debut. And so we did a number of talks together about um, speaking up for mental health, you know, about advocating and normalizing mental health. And we just work really well together. And so mm. as the pandemic came out and it was clear <laughs> that it was affecting everyone's mental health, um, 
and I mean, I have three kids. It was terrible when, you know, my oldest had to do the online school was so horrible. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we just decided, Hey, let's do this mental health anthology. And, um, yeah, so that's how that came. I told you I was a talker. See, it's good. It's good. (laughs) Well, I, I appreciate you sharing of your, yourself and your story. And, uh, I appreciate the way that you center compassion and I love that idea of seeing a book, seeing yourself in a book or seeing into someone's experiences uh, twofold with um, both the uh, severe OCD, but then also rural Appalachian experiences. So, uh, yeah, yeah, much love for that. And I'm sure that uh, you, you've shared insight for many more than just one, I'm yeah. sure. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so powerful to to take up stories and experiences and be willing and vulnerable to share them through a book, through a talk about a book. I appreciate that, too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so last official question, and then we can hit anything that we've missed from the list that we want to make sure to talk about. Uh, I do want to mention Fault Lines. Uh, currently reading, as I said, The Galley. And um, I'll time this with the release of the book, if you like, as well. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I want to make sure that we mention that. And then uh, any spaces where readers can connect, see more about your work, follow along, um, Mm -hmm. social media-wise, website-wise, or or anything that's upcoming events and and otherwise that you'd like to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So fault lines, I just want to say, um, so if you read my short story in absolutely normal, you, and then you read fault lines, you can kind of see that I was like working out some things that I wanted to do more with in the short mm-hmm. story and then, you know, use them in fault lines. So fault lines has a little bit of, um, magic in it. It's set in rural West Virginia. The tagline is, um, riveting, powerful, and a little bit magical fault lines offers readers a slow burn romance, alongside an unflinching examination of socioeconomics, gender expectations, and environmental ethics set in a gorgeous but troubled Appalachian landscape. So it is my first- Quite a um, subtitle, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so it's my first romance because the edge of anything, there is no romance in it, which um, used to be like, what? You can't have a YA without romance, but a lot of people like that it doesn't have romance in it. but there is my story in absolutely normal also has a romance in it, but it's a short story. So what I did with fault lines was it's set where, um, in rural West Virginia, where I'm from and it at the heart of it is fracking, right? So there's a girl who's, um, from West Virginia has been there for generations. And so she has a love for the land and some, a place that's really important to her is destroyed by fracking. And so she goes on this kind of like anti-fracking campaign she's going to figure out who did who's responsible and like take them down mm-hmm. and so then you have this um the other main character dex um because it's a dual point of view and he is he's coming from a very poor family and his mom has moved him to rural west virginia because for the first time since she's gotten out of the military she's finally this is a job working on the pipeline that is going to raise them out of poverty and so he is very like this is the best thing ever. And because he wants to get out of poverty, he wants to go to law school and help his mom. And um, so it's, t- these people have two very different ideologies mm-hmm. and they're thrown together um, 
in an intriguing way, right? And then also like the other characters um, are maybe not what a lot of people would expect from kids growing up in rural West Virginia, but which that's just not true. You know, like there's, there's not just like white hillbillies growing up in yep. West Virginia. Yep. So, um, and so, so that I, I'm, I'm really excited for fault lines and definitely nervous about it because I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people from my community, but I think there might be some pushback too. Cause I, I grew up literally in the middle of the frack line debate, uh, fracking debate. I mean, um, less than a mile from my home, there was a huge explosion of mm-hmm. a pipeline. Um, and so I understand the myriad perspectives on it. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do with the book was show those um, compassionately, hopefully, um, and let readers, you know, hopefully figure out what they need to do and that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. Right. And get people talking because it's easy to be like, I don't see, I don't look out my window and see a huge pipeline. So that doesn't really impact me. So I can just, you know, have all these opinions about it and it's not really impacting me at all. Right. That's very different from those of us who grew up where all of a sudden one day (laughs) your landscape is ravaged because now there's this huge pipeline and all the trees are gone and, you know, things are catching on fire. I mean, it's very, it's a very, very different, (laughs) very different thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, have a number of events coming up. Um, if you're in, if you're in West Virginia, I will be at Wheeling Reads, um, on Saturday, September 9th. Um, if you're in North Carolina, I'm doing the Malaprops launch of Fault Lines on September 12th, which is when the book comes out. Um, I'm going to be at the North Carolina School Library Media Association Conference in Winston-Salem on October 6th. I'm going to be at Park Road Books in Charlotte on October 12th. Um, I'm going to be at the West Virginia Book Fest on Saturday, October 21st. And I'm going to be at Epic Fest in Charlotte, November 3rd through 4th. And then I'll also be at NCTE um, later in November. Um, let's see what else you asked. You The best way to find me is at my website, by, uh, Nora Carpenter. Uh, wait, noracarpenterwrites.com. <laughs> I had like yeah. a real brain moment. Um, yeah, noracarpenterwrites.com. Um, and then all of my socials on there. I'm just Nora Carpenter Writes on Instagram and at Nora Shalloway Carpenter on uh, TikTok. Um, so those are the best ways to follow me, but probably the absolute best way is to join my newsletter. Um, and then you can always hear about upcoming events, but yeah. Okay. Hope Fantastic. That yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Shout out to Charlotte. Shout out to Malaprops. Love that. Um, Ooh, yeah. I want to tell you one more thing, which is really cool. So when I was mm-hmm. in Charlotte earlier this year for, um, an event for the edge of anything, I was, I met a bunch of teens and one of them well, probably more than them, but one of them that I met is a really cool artist. And so they actually did the artwork uh-huh. for, um, this is a postcard that you can get if you pre-order um, fault lines from Malaprops. And so there's um, a white deer plays plays a role in the book. And uh, so, yeah, so they did the art, which I love having a teenager do the art for it. So yeah, just- yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, did we miss anything that you want to make sure to talk about? I think we, I think we hit everything through our conversation. Um, yeah, I'm just checking good. my list. Yeah, I think so. 
All right. Well, thank you for uh, taking some time to talk about your work and always glad to talk with you. Uh, I hope you can consider this a, a podcast space where you can always share about what's coming out. Uh, and I appreciate the work you're doing. And I think it is wonderful and beautiful and uh, definitely something that is making a difference in the world for young people and older people, too. So uh, thanks for taking some time to talk with me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Jason.